This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We move into a discussion in this hour of our program that I've been looking forward to for some time because we can cover some areas of discussion with Keisha Allen, who is Executive Director for Association for Metro Area Autistic Children Incorporated. And she is joining us in uh, this hour of our program by phone. First of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with a little bit of your background because, as I understand, you've worked as an education administrator really with a focus in this area of special education and also at-risk youth. Why that approach on your part career-wise? Sure. I have always had a passion for education, in particular those that are considered at-risk, those that need to be taught differently. And so students who are typically classified under that umbrella of needing services under special education, what can students achieve? Uh, Sometimes I think, you know, parents or other administrators, other educators, sometimes think about a child who is uh, classified under special education as to the limitations that they have. We often don't see them for the abilities, and so that has always been something that's important to me is what can these students accomplish, what can these students do. So that has always been a driving force for my impact and my critical role as to what I see is needed in education. How do you describe the organization that you head up in terms of what you do? I am the executive director at AMAC. It's the Association for Metro Area Autistic Children. And the school was founded in 1961 uh, by founder Patricia Selch, who has since passed away. The school was founded for, in particular, individuals with a developmental disability. It was created to provide high-quality programs to people with autism, developmental disabilities, and emotional disorders, really with the goal of enabling them to function to their fullest capacity and provide support and respite for their families from the metropolitan area. So in summary, it's really providing the services to allow the students, the individuals, to become independent to the best of their abilities. When we talk about the idea of someone having autism, this is something that comes up often in discussions, as you know. But for those who they themselves do not have autism, perhaps they don't even have a family member or know someone who's on the autism spectrum, they can be unfamiliar with what it's like to live with autism. How can you explain what it's like for somebody who has autism? The person with autism, it really is um, daily routines. It's repetitive behaviors. What those of us, as you shared, if you're not experienced with autism, 
seeing repetitive behaviors, um, for some, you know, it seems different. Uh, you don't necessarily fit in. And for anyone with autism, um, depending on the individual and where they are on the spectrum, it determines their particular behaviors. They could be verbal, they could be nonverbal, but it's really that repetitive routine. It's the challenges of not being able sometimes to communicate appropriately in a social setting. It's the inability sometimes to communicate, um, lack of speech. Again, they could be nonverbal, which means they have to communicate in a different mechanism. You know, imagine what it would be like for any of us if we can't communicate. How do you therefore get across what it is that you're trying to say? You know, one of the things that surprises a lot of people, and um, I use the statistics in college classrooms because I teach a couple of uh, communication courses, one of them called human communication, another one in public speaking. One of the facts with human communication is the fact that 93% roughly of our communication is nonverbal. And as you were saying that about somebody with autism, I think, well, wait a minute. For the person who has autism, are they able to effectively communicate in a nonverbal fashion? So some of them are and some aren't, you know, Mm -hmm. again, depending on where they are and the methods by which they're being taught. There are those students who might utilize uh, something that's called picture exchange communication system, or they might have an adaptive communication device, and so they absolutely can communicate. It's about teaching them those skills that are needed in order to communicate in whichever fashion that means for them. So absolutely, they can. They just need to be taught and have the ability to practice, just like everyone else. Practice makes perfect. Um, but really, it's the, you know, it's the social skills challenging, un- understanding what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and then how are you communicating. What are the biggest misconceptions about autism? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that individuals with autism are limited in what they can do. And, you know, that's a broad, sweeping statement. Again, we all can do something. We all are able to achieve. It's a matter of what we can do to our abilities. I would say many people think that uh, if you know one person with autism, you know every single person with autism. And if you know one person with autism, you only know one person with autism. They're all very different depending upon where they are on the spectrum. So how then do we get past these misconceptions, you know, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, it's 2017. Um, You know, this is a disease that is relatively common in diagnosis. There are a lot of people who know someone or are related to someone who is on the spectrum. There is some awareness of the disease in our society, How can we really get a handle on changing public perceptions? I think everyone has to be educated about autism. Everyone has to understand what this is, um, you know, knowing what some of those signs are. And we don't expect that our average person becomes an expert in autism, but just being able to identify if someone is different. 
um, understanding that not everyone um, is able to verbally communicate. So what might that look like? And really providing individuals with autism the opportunity to be exposed to our general population, the world in general, giving them in schools that opportunity to have integration amongst their peers, amongst their um, non-special education peers, giving them those opportunities for social dynamic opportunities and social exchanges. Every single thing that someone else does who is not diagnosed with autism spectrum should be provided to an individual with autism. Knowing the signs, how important is that? Is that as a tool for those who are teachers or instructors? It is absolutely important. It's critical. If you are able to identify the signs of autism, the earlier that you are able to do it, um, the higher the chances of being able to teach the individuals the tools that they need to be independent and successful in life. Now, I didn't ask you thus far in our discussion, and we're talking, by the way, on our program on the fan with Keisha Allen, who is executive director for AMAC, Association for Metro Area Autistic Children Incorporated, on the web at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot O-R-G. Where do the students come from? Our students come from all five boroughs in New York City, and also uh, sometimes they come from the suburban school districts like Westchester, and you might even have Long Island. So our students come from all across New York City, um, in particular the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. And we have um, a small amount of students that have uh, come from Staten Island. And for those students and their families, I mean, as you're saying that, I can only imagine what the impact must be for them to be in the kind of environment that AMAC can provide. Absolutely. We have families, um, students that have started school with AMAC since they were in preschool and have continued and graduated in the 12th grade or graduated when they turned uh, 21 years of age. So we're a school servicing preschool through high school, so preschool through the 12th grade, or when they age out at the age of 21. The students that are at our school, many of them are transported by busing, and so you take into consideration a daily commute for anyone, what it might be like for a child who has a longer commute. And then we also have those that are independent travelers who are able to travel on their own independently and get to school. But I would tell you that many of the families are so appreciative for the services that are provided at our school. Uh, We are teaching their children. Their children are becoming independent. I'll give an example at a preschool level. Preschool level, some of the students, um, they are potty trained. So, you know, as any other school setting, a child coming into school, having that experience for the first time, isn't always ready or prepared for that. But we pride ourselves in really providing our students with those skills that they're going to need to live independently as they move forward. When we talk about the students that you're working with at AMAC, earlier we talked about the idea of um, working with at-risk 
youth, hard to place students. Um, traditionally, AMAC has worked with. How has that gone? And why the approach with those students? What's that like? Sure. So AMAC serves uh, some of the most challenging students, you know, to, to get an understanding of that. You know, I'll give you an example where the students we are working with cannot be served by their local school district. For whatever the reasons, the school district is unable to provide the services, and that could be for a variety of reasons. They don't have a program to service students with autism spectrum disorder, or it has not worked in that particular school district. To understand the success of our program, um, everyone would also need to understand the demographics of our students and families. Uh, 60% of our students qualify for free or reduced lunch. 7.6% reside in a shelter. Uh, 27% reside in public housing. So again, you know, just looking at demographics, we are, we are serving some of the most um, challenging students in terms of having a disability and then also in terms of their own socioeconomic background. One of the things that um, AMAC does is we pride ourselves in being able to work with our challenging students. You know, for an example, this past school year, we had two children who traveled from Westchester to attend school daily. You know, they commuted every day. Um, it's over 60 minutes each way. And on a daily basis, they're commuting for about two hours, and their mother sent them to our school because of the substantial improvements that they made and that she saw with her children where their local school district initially told her there's nothing we can do to help you. And we were able to mainstream those children back to their local community school district this school year. And they were with AMAC for approximately seven to eight years where we were able to work with them and teach them the tools they needed to have them mainstreamed back to their society. Um, for us, it's about having our students progress on the continuum of services and transitioning them back to that least restrictive environment. So we might not be able to mainstream everyone back to their local community school, but we are able to reduce the restrictive environment that the students are in. Um, a goal, again, is to mainstream children, and we do that without utilizing one-to-one -one aids. You know, if we think about it in society, not many of us have an individual who's specifically working with us on a daily basis to help us be independent and to achieve that goal. So for us, unless it's an emergency, we don't utilize one-to-one -one aids, and we're helping our children to learn independence. And we do this by utilizing applied behavior analysis. And so ABA is a methodology uh, systematically applying interventions based upon the principles of learning theory to improve socially significant behaviors. And so we're helping them to improve upon behaviors. We're helping them to understand what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. We're giving them that opportunity to transition to the real world with functional skills. And I think that's something that um, individuals with autism, it doesn't come as naturally and as easy for someone who doesn't have autism. Um, functional skills are important. Understanding how to cross the street understanding socially appropriate conversations. Those are things that are critical and key to us. So we ensure that we're providing them with those functional skills. And when you say that about providing them with those functional skills, as you're saying that and talking about the work of the school, 
I'm thinking as I assume some of the people who are listening to us probably are thinking too, well, wait a minute, this sounds like very challenging work. What are the people like who work with AMAC? The staff uh, that work with AMAC, it's a phenomenal staff. You know, staff are not paid um, like other school districts. So we are a state-approved non-public school, and we're funded solely through the New York State Education Department. So our funds are from the Education Department, and we do not receive funding like a traditional public school district. And that's an issue that's a a broad, sweeping issue across the board for schools that are non-public schools. So the staff and everyone working at AMAC, they truly love what they do. They're not there because of the money. Some of my staff come in on a daily basis. We don't know what we might deal with in terms of behavior. Some staff are bit, not because students purposely want to bite. This is a part of the behavior. This is a part of, for some children who have autism, um, that's the behavior. Uh, You know, getting kicked, getting bitten. And staff come in on a daily basis, understanding that the challenges that we're going to have with a child is just that, but we're going to be able to work with them and teach them the skills they need. So the staff there are committed they're dedicated, and they're doing this because of their share passion and not because of the money or the salary or the benefits that they make because, again, it does not compare to a um, public school district or to a not-for-profit who has the funding other than government funding. So they're doing this because of that care and because of that love in seeing children improve and being able to enhance and get those skills that are needed. Mm. Your passion shines through in the words that you were sharing with us and the way in which you were speaking about this. For people who are listening to this discussion today who, some of them like me, are very touched by what you're saying, and we wonder, okay, realistically, what can we do to help you? Realistically, uh, one of the things that's critical and important to us right now is we are looking to relocate. We currently uh, reside in Manhattan in the Chelsea area, and as you can imagine, that's very expensive, the cost of real estate. And so we're looking to relocate, and we have focused on the Bronx. It is the borough that has um, the cheapest cost for real estate currently. It hasn't yet um, matched the other boroughs, and we've looked at all boroughs. So we are looking for space, um, approximately 70,000 to 75,000 square feet of space uh, to accommodate our school, also including outdoor space. That's something that's important for our students to have that ability to have um, the outdoor respite and to have all of the things that come with that. Um, we are also looking for donations. And so for anyone who is interested in donating to our school, um, funding is always a need. Again, that's one of the things that we're currently working on is building and increasing our fundraising efforts because, again, we're a school funded by the state and our funds are limited. So in order of importance, it's that relocation of space. And then for those who would like to donate, um, clearly monetary um, would be expected and accepted as well, rather. So anyone that would like to donate or also donating supplies for our students, that's something that we would also appreciate. What kind of supplies? Supplies in terms of um, books, 
reading books, um, that's important, um, both for verbal and nonverbal students. Uh, supplies for our related services unit, which are speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and counselors, uh, materials that can be utilized in those particular areas. Uh, regular school supplies, glue, paper, pencil, um, things of that nature, but the books are critical. Um, anyone who would like to donate further to help us uh, further establish our sensory gym, that's one of the things that I was able to accomplish this school year. We've opened a sensory gym, and for anyone with a disability, that's critical, but even so much more for students with autism. Our related services unit, um, they would absolutely love any donations to further enhance our sensory gym. So that's something that would also be of use. Okay. I'm curious about that. What exactly is a sensory gym? Sure. So a sensory gym is a gym that's actually created for children with autism, and it helps those who are either um, underutilized in the area of sensory or they might be overstimulated in the area of sensory, so someone who might not be able to accommodate loud noises or someone who might not be able to accommodate the touch, someone touching their skin, or someone who needs to feel pressure um, on their skin. So it really allows them to accommodate and to utilize the senses that are either under or overstimulated, and gives them that ability to have that output and to really release the various issues that they might be having as it relates to sensory. So when we're looking at the things that people who are listening to us can do to help you, donations come forward as a very key area. Do you use or can you use volunteers at all? We can use volunteers. That's a program we're working on um, with volunteers. We have to undergo uh, a thorough investigation background process prior right. to anyone being able to come in to work with our students. So that is something that we can utilize, providing we've gone through that process and they have passed the investigation background. Anyone working in our school, working with our children, they have to undergo that um, thorough, intense security background check. Now, one of the challenges, I would imagine, becomes this area of trying to retain staff because, you know, you're dealing with, obviously, funding challenges um, that to some people might even seem insurmountable. But you're dealing with those. What's it like? I mean... How do you keep people? You know, again, it truly goes back to the passion that people have. I'll tell you, over the past, I've been the executive director there. Um, I just completed my second year, and I have seen uh, the staff issues increase yearly. The public schools have started to recruit from schools like ours because they're coming in with all of this training on how to work with a child with autism, and many public school districts are trying to create their own programs. So what, how much better is it to be able to recruit staff from schools like this where you could pay them more in terms of the salary, in terms of benefits? So it is a challenge. I would say that over the two years I have seen the increase in staff leaving and being recruited by other schools that can pay more. I would say that's about 45%. Um, it's the passion that they have for wanting to be there. 
It's um, me having worked on some of the benefits that we provide, uh, trying to get additional funding so that over time we can increase the salaries, but it really comes back to the passion that individuals have for our children and wanting to be there to see them succeed. We are in a discussion with Kashia Allen, and I've been mispronouncing your first name, I apologize, who is Not a problem. Executive Director for Association for Metro Area Autistic Children Incorporated. Because I was looking at the spelling of the name and thinking to myself, <laughs> now, I'm saying this wrong. I know I'm saying this wrong. Okay. I um, appreciate it. <laughs> when we talk about this idea of this challenge of retaining staff, We have to talk a little bit about District 75. First of all, what is District 75? District 75 is a uh, program within the New York City Department of Education's education system that services students with disabilities. It's meant in particular for students with more severe disabilities. So you will find that they service a range of disabilities in that program, not just autism, but students who might be emotionally disturbed, um, students that might have traumatic brain injury, et cetera. Uh, prior to us leaving on the break, we talked about, you know, the question you asked about the retention of staff. I would be remiss if I did not share for our school, a state-approved non-public school, we're funded approximately $38,000 less uh, than our public school district counterparts, in particular District 75. I can share that our staff work extremely hard. We've had graduating students um, in the 2016 school year. We had 21 high school graduates. Uh, again, you know, our numbers are smaller than your average public school, but for a school like ours, this is a large graduating class. 24% of that graduating class earned a local high school diploma, 48% earned a Regents Diploma, and for those who are not clear on the local diploma and what that means, a local diploma is where students have to take the five Regents exams. There are five basic Regents exams that they have to take and pass in order to earn this local diploma, and then the Regents Diploma, they're taking more than five Regents Diplomas to earn that. And then 28% of our students earn the Career Development Occupational Studies Certificate, of our 21 graduates, 24% went to college, 14% went to Job Corps, and 9.5% entered trade school. And one of our students earned a scholarship to attend college. And so we are doing phenomenal, amazing work at our school in order to prepare our students to go out into this real world and acclimate and achieve um, for each individual what success is for them. But we're doing this work, and we're funded much less than our counterparts in a public school system. Mm. So the natural question that comes up is, first of all, why is there that level of discrepancy? And then secondly, what, if anything, can be done about it? It's a great question. Uh, That level of discrepancy, it's something that has to be looked at at the state level. It's something that regardless if we are a public school, a non-public school, we are all servicing the same children. Um, They are all in our schools for a particular reason. And so looking at this from the state level end and how do you now um, 
make funding equitable? How are you looking at the schools and the children they are serving and what's expected of them? You know, there are things in non-public schools that they don't receive. You know, we don't receive additional money to purchase books and supplies. We don't receive additional federal funding, such as Title I, which for a lot of public schools, that is a significant portion of their budget. That allows for additional programs. That allows for intervention supports within a school. We don't receive those things. So at the larger level, I believe there has to be conversations had at the state education department level, at local government um, politicians. We all have to come to the table and say, okay, what's going on here? Um, this is a significant issue. This is a significant problem. And if not addressed, what happens to the children? Because at the end of the day, this is the reason we're doing what we're doing. So if we're not providing the funding needed to provide them with that quality education, then what are we doing? And I've always said this and will always stand by it. It doesn't matter the socioeconomic status of someone. It doesn't matter public school, non-public school, private school. Every child deserves an education. Every child deserves that fair opportunity to be educated and to become as independent as they can become, regardless of a disability or not. Mm. Okay. The question that I'm thinking as I'm listening to you is, yes, it's important that a lot of people step up to be part of the discussion. Realistically, is anybody listening? You know, I, I think realistically people hear it, but until something um, dramatic, until something significant happens, um, that's when really all eyes become open. You know, um, you know, if a school all of a sudden is going to close, and make no mistake about it, any one of us, you know, that's something that we've had to look at. Can this become a possibility? Of course, no one wants that. So th by all means, that's not what we're doing or where we want to head. But if we're not receiving the funding and if we're not all going to look at this, that's something that can happen to any one of these non-public schools is that we don't have the funding. We're not able to retain the staff. And you need quality staff to work with our students. Every school deserves that. Every school needs that. But it's something where I think until something dramatic happens, um, yes, people are listening, but it's that, you know, it's that um, reaction approach of if something happens, then all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, I really need to pay attention to this, where these are things that might have been brought to your attention for quite some time, but it, ne it wasn't necessarily given that attention that was needed. Okay. I think a perfect area to segue into is to talk a little bit, too, about AMAX Day in Albany, which take place at, took place at the um, state capitol. What was that like? That was an amazing experience for our students and for our families and for our staff who attended. Um, we organized a lobby day in Albany um, to talk about the funding that's needed uh, to get some additional funds that we had been requesting uh, through a waiver process. And so we had some students, we had some alumni uh, parents who attended, and some staff. And I'll tell you that for many of them, that opportunity to actually um, effectuate what they had been taught in the classroom about government, about um, how do you work with politicians uh, when you're lobbying for a cause. We had one of our students who has a significant um, speech deficit, and he attended the trip. And to see him speak to elected officials, first of all, anyone who's 
familiar with public speaking understands that for anyone, it can be a nerve-wracking experience. Um, For someone with a disability, in particular a speech deficit, how much more challenging can that be? And he stopped, took a breath. Uh, Whenever he would start to stutter or have a problem with getting the words out, he just stopped and would start again. And everyone was patient in understanding that. But to see him be able to tell his story of why AMAC is important to him and um, not get flustered and not become annoyed and get his story out and know that it's okay that he has a speech deficit. Um, It was a proud and bold moment for him. All of the staff were proud. His family was proud. Um, Him just being able to tell that experience. Then we had the mother of an alumni student. This is our student who received a scholarship to college um, the prior school year. And she talked about her story when her child was in public school and um, the challenges she faced where he was unhappy. He was, they were unable to teach him. No one could really get through to him. They didn't have the supports in place that was needed. And then she decided that she was going to fight for her child, and she was going to try to find the placement that would best suit her child. And she was able to get him into AMAC, and she says the difference of her child, um, he soared. He had friends. He was no longer being bullied. He was no longer different. And he was taught. He was learning. And everyone was able to work with him in a matter that suited his particular learning style. So these are the stories from the families, from the students themselves, um, the opportunity to meet elected officials and to really understand what they do and to share their passion. Um, what better way than the electeds to hear that? It's not Kashia, the executive director, sharing this. You're hearing it from the horse's mouth. And that was an amazing experience for everyone involved. And what was the reaction? The reaction was, wow, um, look at what this school has um, accomplished, has done for their students, um, you know, and how much more they can do. We were successful in lobbying for some additional funds. Um, The state said, yes, they would work with us to get additional funding, and we're still working through that process. But everyone involved was extremely proud, and we look forward to being able to continue that collaboration and that partnership with the state education department to receive additional funds and to further help our students continue their learning progress. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of this new location you're looking for and what that process is like. Because you mentioned something very important when talking about, you know, the kind of space that you need and obviously costs are going through the roof, um, no pun intended, in Mm -hmm. um, most of the city and even in parts of the Bronx, yeah. uh, too. Um, are there specific areas of the Bronx where you are looking at this point? We have not. We've looked in the South Bronx. Um, some properties have identified themselves in the South Bronx, um, but again, you know, a lot of people are seeking space. Mm-hmm. We haven't focused on one particular area um, per se. It just happens that uh, I would say at least two of the buildings that were brought to our attention have been located in the South Bronx. Um, In terms of a commute-wise perspective, that's an area that works well also because it is near public transportation and you have various um, options and mechanisms for public transportation. But we haven't focused solely on one area. 
in terms of um, why the Bronx. Perhaps some people are asking that, and, you know, we've talked about this. It is more cost-effective for the school. The way in which we're funded and what the state will approve, uh, the Bronx at the moment does work better for our budget, and so that's something that we have to focus on as we're looking for 70,000 to 75,000 square feet. We're looking for more conducive space to learning, you know, gym and outdoor areas for children, closer to potential collaborative partners and resources. And that's something that's critical and important. Again, that op- the ability to give our students the opportunity to have all of the experiences that their peers do. That's something that's very important. And it also provides for the expansion of our school to our full capacity. So getting a space and allowing us to relocate into a building that would provide our maximum capacity is also something that would help us from a revenue perspective because now we are maximizing the number of students that we can have per our state license, and that means that we have that increase in revenue per tuition um, per student. Opening up a new school, the licensing process, um, how long does something like that take? The licensing process um, usually can be uh, up to two years, and so as it is, it's going to be a heavy task um, through working with elected officials, through the work that we're doing with Gotham. Um, That's something that we will expedite so that we can get this done within a year. It's something that we've put on the radar for everyone. The state education department is aware of this. Elected officials are aware of this. So we will be able to pull together to get it done, but it's usually a process that can take um, anywhere from 24 months to, uh, you know, sometimes it could be 24 months and longer. Mm. Well, it sounds like a very ambitious effort. I mean, it's one can only hope that uh, you're able to find a space, first of all, that is uh, completely suitable for what it is that you want to do and uh, that will suit your needs, and that this process can be moved along in an expeditious fashion um, that would definitely serve you well as an organization. AMAC.org, A-M-A-C dot O-R-G, the uh, website. And through that site, I'm assuming that people can get in touch with you if they're interested in helping out in terms of donations or things like that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, They can also contact the school, They can contact the school at 212-645-5005, extension 2112. They can ask for me, Kashia Allen, or they can simply ask for the executive director of the school. Those messages will come through. They can also get in touch with us via the website. Again, that's www.amac, A-M as in Mary, A-C, cisincat.org, they can reach us um, that way as well. And I would be more than happy to speak with anyone who has ideas or potential space that can help us, uh, those that might be interested in volunteering. So absolutely look forward to anyone who is willing and interested in working with us. And thank you for this opportunity as well. Certainly. And would you just repeat the phone number you mentioned? Sure. It is 212-645-645. 5005 extension 2112. Very interesting discussion with Kashia Allen, who's executive director of AMAC, talking with us on our program on the fan this morning. 
Good luck with your efforts. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.